Our passage we'll be looking at today, and so we continue this study, is in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 20 through 21. Hear the word of the Lord. For Paul writes to his young lieutenant in the faith, Timothy, in the city of Ephesus. He says, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by profession it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Guard the deposit. Avoid the irreverent babble. Be strong. Be courageous. So I heard this statement made this week by Al Mohler, whom I respect very much. He says, never before has there been a time in the history of the church and culture where there was not an agreement on the definition of marriage. He says we're entering into uncharted waters, a time of incredible discombobulation. And he says be very careful. And then there's a man named Theo Hobson, who's a British thinker, and he says for a moral revolution to take place in a culture, three things have to come to pass. And I think he's right. I mean, look at history. Number one is what was condemned has to be celebrated. And just very quickly, what what was unheard of and spoken in whispers 30 years ago is now being proclaimed as being good. Advantageous and avant-garde. Secondly, he says, that which was celebrated must now be condemned. And thirdly, he says, those who refuse to celebrate are condemned. They're marginalized. And, and so I, I think that as we consider these things, and as we think about guarding that which has been entrusted to us, the church must say, we will be the church. We are called of God. We are a prophetic minority. I'm not sure, ever sure there's a moral majority in the U.S., maybe so. But we, we are the prophetic minority that speaks forth the word of God and holds forth the standards of the Lord. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, it says this, verse 23 and following, Peter says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all the flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of our Lord stands forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. The gospel, he says, stands forever. The gospel is unchanging because God in his character is unchanging. And therefore, we must be people of clarity and courage. Now, I'm going to make two, two statements about this real quickly. I'm going to go to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians 5. Paul is writing another letter. The previous letter has been lost. We don't have it. We have 1 Corinthians as the second letter. So 1 Corinthians 5, he's talking about speaking of purity in the church. And this is what he says, verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter, previous letter, not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all, meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. I think that's apostolic humor. You have to leave the world, because they're everywhere. Church of Corinth, they're all over Corinth. 
But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother in Christ if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or idolater or a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler. Don't even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging others? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, but purge the evil person from among you. In, in other words, the church is supposed to be the church. We're to be different. We claim to know Jesus and be possessors of the Holy Spirit. We're different. And then he addresses the culture at large in the next chapter, and this is what he says. Verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So just look around the church at Corinth, look around our church. You see former people who were addicted to alcohol or substance abuse. You see people who were at one time known for their business malpractice. You see people who were involved in sexual deviant behavior, but they can't even know Jesus, and God changed them. See, so I, an unrepentant person involved in swindling people. Say, well, I'm, I'm, I own several businesses, and I always overcharge, underdeliver, and give subpar materials. I've been sued countless times, but I've got a good attorney. I get out. Uh, I'm, yeah, I'm a swindler. But that's just who I am, but I love the Lord. No, you're a liar. You are a liar, and the truth is not in you, and if you die today, you go to hell. Or I, I'm just greedy. I cheat and steal. I'm just greedy. I, I, I'm always coveting. I want what's yours. I want it. And I, I'm going to cheat and steal to get it. I, but, hey, let's go to church. I love Christ. No, you're a liar. The truth is not in you. It's very clear. So when we see people who are involved in ongoing, unrepentant, sinful behavior, unrepentant, they were all sinners, but unrepentant, unforsaken sin, and yet I, they say, I know the Lord. You know what the Bible says? They're liars. So when we come to these issues about sexuality or whatever, they're not minimalist issues. They're eternal issues. And so the church has got to be the church. So I'm going to give you two more points, and this is going to be pretty strong, but hang in there. If we're to be people who guard the gospel, in addition to the three points last week of being involved with people who have a pathos over your soul, keep the main message the main message, and understand stewardship. Number four is this. We must understand the times in which we live. The zeitgeist is a German word. The, the times of, of our age. See, the book of 1 Timothy was written to address specific issues in Ephesus. False teaching. Not taking care of widows. Entertaining false accusations against elders. It addressed specific issues. We have to understand the culture of our, of our times. And it's a time for great sobriety. I was at a conference this week, Gospel Coalition Conference, and there was a question and answer in a large auditorium. A young man stood up and said, uh, I'm, I'm starting a church in Miami Beach, Florida, and the culture is just, 
it's just a non-believing culture. And the speaker, he said this, and I could not agree with him more. He said, thank you for saying that. But he said, we all live in Miami Beach, Florida today. See, we all live in Miami Beach. The, the, the Christian ethos that may have somehow been part of the vapor is rapidly dissipating. We, we are a prophetic minority. And listen to me, there's a certain part of me that welcomes the change. I remember, some of you remember, a lot of you remember, 20 years ago, if you ran for public office, it showed a picture of you with your family, you're all happy and high-fiving each other, have a perfect marriage and perfect kids. I'm running for public office, and so the first line is, started these businesses, second line, educated this school, third line, involved in these uh, organizations, fourth line, attend this church. Deacon, elder, vestry member, bishop, whatever, this church. I don't see that anymore. In fact, if you're a person of faith, it's really considered to be maybe potentially negative. So you see, so often, and when I was younger, years ago, the Christian faith was a bolt-on. I do A, B, C, D, E, and by the way, I also go to church occasionally. Bolt-on. I think we're entering a time that, 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 that the people of God have got to say, the bloody cross and the empty tomb is central in my life to stand strong. You've got to glory in the salvation by the Savior who shed his blood for my sin. You got to rejoice in the empty tomb. You got to really believe there's a guy who walked around, he taught people, and he performed miracles, and he claimed to be God, and he rose a man from the dead, people from the dead, and he gave blind people sight and crippled people limbs of strength, and they put him to death on the cross, and three days later, he rose from the dead. And then several days after that, he ascended into heaven, and he said, I'm coming again. A dead man really rose from the dead. And, and so it's got to be central to who we are. And so as we do that, First Peter, a book written to a church, going into an incredible crisis of persecution. In First Peter 3, it says this. These are words I think we should all memorize. First Peter 3, 14 and following says this. But, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed... Jesus said, blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you. Peter's echoing his Savior. You'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that resides in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. So he says, you know, first of all, Set apart Christ in your heart as holy God. And as you do that, be able to give a reason for that hope, and you do it with gentleness and respect. In this culture, you determine Jesus is holy. And then you say, I need to think through these issues, and I need to answer people with gentleness and respect. Now, let me give you an example. Baseball season. This is a guy named Daniel Murphy plays the New York Mets. Recently, uh, this year, the Major League Baseball Association appointed a guy named, uh, last name is Bean, who was a former Major League player, had a very short career. Uh, he's called, quote, the ambassador of inclusion, close quote. Now, this, this man played six years in the majors, and as he retired, he said, you know, I need to tell you this, I am a homosexual. So he came out of the closet. 
So now he is the ambassador of inclusion. This man who plays for the Mets, Daniel Murphy, is a, is a believer, an outspoken Christian. He has baseball camps in the offseason for underprivileged children where he teaches them about baseball in Christ. Been very involved in the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Anyway, he, so he was, they were doing a discussion. This wasn't a prepared statement. They put a microphone in his face and they said, what do you think about Billy Beans being the ambassador of inclusion? You're an outspoken Christian. You lead the chapel for the Mets with your chaplain. He says, well, this is a direct quote. And to me, this is 1 Peter 3. All right, listen. I do disagree with the fact that Billy is a homosexual. That doesn't mean I can't still invest in him and get to know him. I don't think the fact that someone is a homosexual should completely shut the door on investing in them in a relational aspect, getting to know him. That I would say you can still accept them, but I do not agree with his lifestyle, 100%. And he said the Christians at times have not been articulate enough a baseball player using the word articulate. That's impressive to me, okay? <laughs> Haven't been articulate enough in describing what our actual stance on homosexuality really is. We love the people. We disagree with the lifestyle. There are, and there are aspects, Murphy says, of my life that I'm trying to surrender to Christ. Like my pride. But I just disagree with the lifestyle but that doesn't mean that I'm ever going to stop speaking to Billy Bean every time he walks through the door because that's not love, close quote. Let me tell you something. That's ironic, that's gracious, that's kind. Well, the firestorm hit. The Mets came out with a statement saying, we apologize for this. Adele, this Murphy, Murphy will, never, will no longer address his religious beliefs, beliefs and he will stick to baseball. What concerns me? is, first of all, let me show you this. This is a statement from the Code of Statements, whatever, uh, by the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, which is very biblical and very good. I love FCA. We've been involved in FCA since I've been here several decades. We've had FCA leaders in our church and still do. So they said, this is their statement um, of faith or Christian living. Neither heterosexual sex outside of marriage nor any homosexual act constitutes an alternative lifestyle acceptable to God. That's, that's a perfectly good statement. It's a true statement that the only acceptable sex given to us by the God who is gloriously good and who wants our well-being is a husband and a wife in marriage. Well, in the aftermath of this, their, their public relations firm released this statement. I want you to see the difference, and I think they blew it here. I love FCA, but they had a bad day this day, I think. You make up your mind. Their statement says about this man who is an FCA person, FCA would like to maintain a friendly position in the sports world and being a Christian organization, they have a firm biblical foundation, but, that's the bad word, they would prefer not to get involved at this level on this issue at this time, close quote. Now, to me, you just, before the but, you just say, we love people and we affirm Daniel Murphy as a man of integrity who loves Christ. May God bless us during these times. Close quote. They went wobbly. They went wobbly. Don't go wobbly. Speak the truth. Speak it with grace and diplomacy and kindness. But brothers and sisters, speak it. So two comments about this under four. This is kind of sub-point one and two under number four. Uh, I, 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 I think we have to be very, very careful about the Rip Van Winkle effect. 
You know the story of Rip Van Winkle by Washington Irving written in 1819 about a man who was a kind of a dullard, lazy guy, so his wife fussed at him all the time, but he, the kids loved him. He was popular in the village because he never worked. He just had fun with everybody. And so finally her nagging drove him to go to the mountains one day just to get away from her. And he met a guy there dressed in Dutch clothing, older Dutch clothing. They played a game, and he fell asleep, and he woke up, and his beard was a foot long, and his musket was rusty, and his dog, of course, had long since gone. And he goes down the mountain into the village, and that which used to be the King George Inn, right before the Revolutionary War, when it took place, is now the George Washington Inn. He says, what's going on? And he walked around and said, I recognize you. You're the man. You're been asleep for 20 years. Listen, we can be asleep at the helm and change, things can, can change and we don't even know it. We, we've got to be, see, part of the calling of the church is to be aware of what is going on. You cannot assume things anymore, church. Listen, you cannot assume. The change is so rapid, it's mind-boggling. We, we, we can't assume anything. Let me give you, I'm going to walk down memory lane with you just for two minutes. So give me this indulgence. I grew up in a small town in North Carolina. I went in the first grade in 1960. Now, in my small town, we had all types of issues. We had unfaithfulness. We had drunkenness. We had, on my state semifinal football team my junior year, we had one man who shot and killed his father, another guy who became an LSD addict and, and the most brilliant guy on the team and now doesn't even know his name. Another guy just five years ago died of a heroin overdose. I mean, we, we had issues. Don't misunderstand. We had issues, but... Basically speaking, the culture at large supported the values of my family, which is pretty conservative. My first grade teacher went to our church. And I found out years later that she had problems of plenty in her marriage. But she was faithful and she supported those values. My second grade teacher was 800 years old. <laughs> She'd been teaching for 50 years, sang in our choir. She was just, had been teaching literally for four or five, four decades. And, and so sweet very kind woman. My third grade teacher was just mean. She was mean, but, but she supported the values of my parents and paddled me numerous times. My fourth grade teacher was a leader of the Methodist church. Her two children were twins my age, good friends, very gracious, very caring. She pulled us in when I was in the fourth grade in November of 1863. We turned on the PA system. We heard Walter Cronkite in a broken voice say, the president of the United States has been assassinated in Dallas, Texas. My fifth grade teacher was, her married name was Mrs. Troutman. And she was about four foot ten inches tall. Troutman. She believed in me. She loved me. She told me I was smart and special and gifted. And that's the last time I heard that until I got in college. <laughs> my sixth grade teacher, before my sixth grade year, there was a rumor in our town of 1,300 people. Have you seen the sixth grade teacher? No. Everybody said, I I get to school in sixth grade. Lo and behold, I'm assigned to a woman who first year out of college, and she is drop-dead gorgeous. Mike Lindsay, you're here and in the gym. Do not do that to sixth grade boys. <laughs> that is unfair. Now, I don't know what I learned, but I was a willing student every day in school. So my Cub Scout leaders, my Boy Scout leaders, my Little League coaches, they all supported, kind of, sort of, yeah, values. No-fault divorce was unknown. No-fault divorce means you divorce just because it's not working out. In my day, when I was younger, you had to have a strong reason for divorce. People didn't get divorced that often. Out-of-wedlock births were at 5%. 
unheard. I mean, it was, there's a shame involved. As before, Roe v. Wade was used as a means of birth control, abortion. That wasn't perfect. We had issues. My point is, you cannot assume those things any longer. And you've got to be vigilant, parents, grandparents, get involved. Uncles, aunts, community group leaders, you've got to be vigilant. Don't assume. It's the Rip Van Winkle effect. I was reading recently this article from a website about a man who's an outspoken homosexual who's celebrating the advancement. The title of the article is For Christians and Gay Marriage is Culture, Not Doctrine. And he says this, he says, hardly any of this religious support for marriage equality was even imaginable, he says, 15 years ago. He says, That's 15 years ago. He said, if you told me we'd be here 15 years ago, I'd have said, you're smoking narcotics. Not going to happen. He says, I remember working in the movement to make the Lutheran church more affirming of lay, you know, lesbian, gay, bi." sexual, transgendered, LGBT people. In 2001, the focus was on allowing these clergy to serve openly. Marriage equality was not yet on anybody's radar 15 years ago. In the church's tradition of, quote, prayerfully considering controversial issues, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America created a study on human sexuality. What was initially established as a four-year study stretched into eight years of conversation, diligent Bible study and prayer, and incremental votes that moved the church into a place where it finally, in 2009, affirmed not only committed lifelong gender relationships, but also clergy in the same position. Let me say, you don't need a long time to study the Bible in the area of sexuality. Five minutes will do. It's very clear. And he says, I can't believe we're there. He says, I celebrate, of course. And then the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America, the mainline church, who has a glorious history, came out with this statement just last month, marriage. You have to really pay attention now because this is... Okay. Marriage is a gift God has given to all humankind for the well-being of the entire human family. Marriage involves a unique commitment between two people traditionally. See, there's the word, traditionally. A man and a woman to love and support each other for the rest of their lives. The sacrifice, official love that unites the couple, sustains them as faithful and responsive members of the church and the wider community, traditionally. A great church of the glorious heritage denies the Bible. Again. So the Rip Van Winkle effect, the rapidity of change. Number two under point four is, is, is be, be careful, church, be careful about the death of empathy. As you get older, I think, my personal I think you deal with cynicism. As a pastor, there's not a week that goes by where I don't hear about a marriage that's crashed and burned, a child that's broken their parents' heart, or a cancer that is not retreating. Not a week. And I have to guard myself from just saying, oh, well, people are going to be people, big deal, turn on the TV. Instead of weeping like Jesus did over Jerusalem. I heard this week about a family's marriage dissolved, children 
are involved. Husbands left, will not come back, will not be reconciled. And, and, and I stopped and I buried my head in my hands and I said, God, have mercy upon us. I don't want to forget to hurt. And yet, see, one, one of the things that really impacts us, just the way it is, this is the way we live. So you, you hear about, about a suicide bomber in Iraq that kills 35 people in the market. And then the next day you hear about Boko Haram seizing 50 more girls in northern Nigeria. And then the next day you hear this. And, the next, and pretty soon you're just information overload. And we forget that just a little over a week ago, a man was shot in North Charleston by a policeman. And everybody's talking about that. But that's going to be forgotten unless we remember you have to stop and you remember, do not let the information overload that's just endemic to our culture numb you to reality. People are desperately hurting. And sin destroys. This week I was at a conference and I was in a small room, about 40 of us, 45 of us, for five hours, talking about issues. Many names that you'd know. I mean, leaders in the church. And the man who leads this group, who is, who is training as a Ph.D. in chemistry, he's French-Canadian, and God called him into the ministry, so when he studied, started studying theology, he, he is 67, 68, he's enormously gifted, he has written books that people will study in 80 and 90 and 100 years if the Lord tarries. Uh, his wife, he's walked with his wife through cancer, he flies around the world speaking, he's a major seminary professor, he's incredibly gifted. And has been used of the Lord. And we were sharing prayer requests, and he stood up and he said, I just want to let you guys know I have a son who's a Marine. I'm proud of him. And we just had a conference with 6,000 people. And he says he knows the gospel more, better than 90% of the men who are at this conference, but he does not know Jesus. And he started weeping. His voice broke, and he just started weeping. And I thought, this guy is in charge of this and this and this. He goes here, here, and here. And he does this and he does that, and yet he still is weeping for his son. I said, God, let me be that, that way. Let me follow the one who wept over Jerusalem. So I, I would just say, fight against the death of empathy. Eternity is at stake. Point five. I just finished four. Church, you can get off message and swerve from the truth and end up in the ditch. That's what the text says. He says, some of people, he says, have swerved from the faith. He says in another book, they've made shipwreck their faith. And that's why I keep on saying that stewardship and steward is one appointed to give oversight to a provision who in turn must give an account. I'm a steward. I have dignity. I have a calling. I will stand before God one day as the child of God who's seen the beauty of Jesus, has been given the Holy Spirit, has been given spiritual gifts. I am responsible. And every man, woman, boy, and girl is worthy of respect and Christian love. And so I, I care for people. I, I respond to people. I, I, I live that way. I do not live an unrooted, tumbleweed life. Psalm 1 says that the man who meditates in the Word of God is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf never withers and whatever he does prospers. 
Not so the wicked. They're like the chaff that the wind blows away. See, when you live in an unrooted culture among unrooted people, you have the tumbleweed effect. So, to me, I, the Nazis. So, pictures. Okay, so, uh, these are some of the Nazi leaders taken at a rally. Of course, far right, my right, now on my left, of course, is Adolf Hitler. Stand next to him is a guy named Goring, who was in charge of the Air Force. Uh, Goring was highly decorated World War I vet, became a leader in Nazi Germany, and had special uniforms made for himself of various colors. I mean, pink, purple, yellow uniforms. And he had medals from the First World War, but he had medals made up that were just kind of make-believe medals. Like, this is the Battle of Ahondah. You know? <laughs> this is the Battle of McClellan. He just had them up and down. It's just, he was really... And then next to him, of course, is, is Goebbels. Goebbels was a... PhD, womanizer, weirdo, weird guy. And then Rudolf Hess is next. Rudolf Hess was the number two man for years in the Nazi movement until he flew into England and tried to make an, uh, a deal with Winston Churchill. He, he lost his mind. So the, the, thing that, the thing that I think about with the Nazis, hear words I would never use to describe the Nazis. Debonair. Trendy with it. I mean, Hitler was an idiot. You read Mein Kampf and go, this guy really has a loose screw. You just start, read 10 pages of Mein Kampf, you're going, um, And yet, in 1933, the most advanced country in the world, 34% of the people voted for the Nazis. 34%. And after that, it just snowballed, and then six years later, World War I, and, I, and so, and so th th there's a term, there's a, there's a book, a guy named Richard Evans who wrote these three massive books on World War II. I read them a couple years ago. He's written another book called The, the Third Reich in History and Memory. And he says, how did the Third Reich happen? He said, there's a theory called the Sonderweg theory. Uh, in this analysis, the Third Reich was almost an inevitable product, he says, of a toxic mix of authoritarianism, conformist, anti-democratic, militaristic, expansionistic, nationalistic, and racist elements somehow inherit in the German history, culture, national character, close quote. Somewhat true. Richard Evans is a great historian, British historian. Somewhat true. One reason the Third Reich happened is the church became tumbleweed. The church wasn't the church. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ became the confessing church. On the Lord's table, the cross was taken off and a swastika was put on it. And, and so I, I think about the, the years I have left and our church and us and our culture, and I say, brothers and sisters, let us be rooted. Let us not be a tumbleweed culture. I told the men this the other day. The Masters was last weekend. I shared with them, I've never been to the Masters, but I hear it's a good golf tournament. Never been. 33 years. I've never, never been asked to go to the Masters. <laughs> really, I mean, think about it. I, to me, that's pretty sad. 
Anyway, Jordan Spieth won it this year, last weekend. 21 years old. There's a, some great stories about his life. But, Jordan, but this is, I don't know golf. I don't have the athleticism or the patience to play golf. I really don't. But I, I was in a workout center, just finished working out Saturday morning. It's about 9.15, 9.30. And the golf channel is on in the dressing room. Locker room. Maybe we call it a place where men get dressed. Dressing room, locker room, anyway. So I'm getting dressed in the locker room. Golf channel's on. And these two guys are sitting there. They're golfers, retired golfers, pros. And, and one man says to the other this question with a straight face. Is there any conceivable way? And they have two more rounds to go. That's 36 holes. Okay. Is there any conceivable way? Jordan Spieth is six strokes ahead. Is there any conceivable way that Jordan Spieth could lose the Masters? And the guy said, well, probably. And I thought, really? See, I don't know golf, but that's called two bad holes. I, have loved, I love sports. I've seen basketball teams be ahead... 15 points with three minutes to go and lose the game. I saw a football game one time where a team was ahead 35 to nothing at halftime and they lost 38 to 35. I mean, really, all they, all they had to do is show up in the second half and take a knee. The game's over. And I thought, in the Christian faith, don't ever let me forget that I can swerve. I can swerve. I can end up in the ditch and so can you so guard what's been entrusted to you the truth so application very quickly I'll just make three points number one is this comment that came out of the Reformation the church is reformed and always reforming according to the Word of God the church is reformed, always reforming according to the Word of God. Brothers and sisters, let us be people of the book. Let us run to the sources. Ad fontesque, go to the sources. Let us be people of the book. Let us be careful and diligent and broken and humble and gracious and gentle and desperate. The church always reforming itself according to the word of the Lord. Point number two, the reason we oppose sin in ourselves and the reason we pray for change in our culture is because it defies the character of God and it stops human flourishing. Abba Father wants you to flourish. Genesis 30, Moses says with great emotion, the Lord says, I've said before you, life and death, choose life. The reason we hate sin, I hate sin in me. The reason we, is because sin destroys human flourishing and it defies the character of God. Please, please pray against sin. Pray against that which weighs you down. See, the gospel always promises and always delivers. I was with someone the other day. I'll just tell you, I was with my wife the other day. <laughs> I can say this. I hope. We were driving to Orlando. 
trying to get to the conference late but on time. And I said, I'm starving, which I say frequently. And she says, well, reach in the back seat. There is a, a drink that I'll occasionally drink, and I'll divide it with you. And I reached back there, and I pulled it out, and I recognized it. It's a, it's a drink you buy at a place called Whole Foods. And my daughter started drinking these things, and she got me to try it one time, and I had to gargle for two hours. <laughs> so I'm dying of hunger. I have no option. She says, I'll divide it with you. And I thought, boy, you will you. I mean, it's going to be, it's called Synergy. And on the front of the bottle, and it really, it's, it's, it was red with fruit bobbing up and down. And I took a swallow and I said, it's fermented. And she said, my wife says, yes, that's good for you. And I go, are you serious? But I took a couple swallows. But on, on the front, it said this, synergy, reawaken, rebirth, repurpose, redefine. Now, that's what you call over-promising and under-delivering. I, I didn't feel redefined. I felt a little nauseated, to be honest with you. I, I felt reawakened because I was on high alert because it was so toxic. I definitely wasn't rebirthed, and I didn't re feel repurposed. Anyway, now I thought about where the gospel never overpromises and underdelivers. Never. Jesus is king. He gives you life. He gives you hope. He gives you purpose. I love the gospel. The third point, very quickly, is this, church, and that is that we never, ever, 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 never, ever, 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 ever give way to ultimate despair. We just don't. We don't give way to ultimate despair but because, because we know. We know that God is the God of history. That's why I put Psalm 77 in here. Let me just read part of Psalm 77. And the psalmist is going through a hard time, and he just doesn't sense the presence of God, and there's a declension around him, and it seems like the enemy is pulling, pouring through holes in the wall. And so he says this. He says, you hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years of long ago. He says, so I, I remember God's faithfulness. Later he says this, verse 11, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O Lord, is holy. What God is great like our God? You, you are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. With your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Your way, O Lord, was through the sea, your path, through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So he, he says, you know, it doesn't look good. It, it just doesn't look good. But I remember this, God is God. 
And God led his people by a pillar of fire by night and cloud by day. And when it looked like Pharaoh and his army were about to slaughter the people of God, he parted the waters. And when they stood outside of a great walled city called Jericho, they just shouted and the walls came down. And this great God became a man and he said, I'm building my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And we may go through difficult times, but God is God. And he will use the faithfulness of his people, so count me in. So we don't give way to ultimate despair. So don't listen to Fox. Don't listen to CNN. Don't listen to Rush. Except in small amounts. Listen to the Bible. Listen to the Bible. We're God's people. His kingdom is forever. What did Luther say? One little word fails the devil. We trust in that. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day, for the privilege of worship. Lord, make us a people who are clearly set apart for your purposes. Make us faithful. Uh, I thank you that ultimate Pessimism and hopelessness is never part of the landscape of the child of God. Uh, that you are God. Uh, I pray, Lord, that we'd be careful to watch our life and our doctrine closely because we can swerve in the ditch. We can be disqualified because we leave off the watch. I, I pray, Lord, that you would make us people who do not have the Rip Van Winkle effect or people who have the depth of empathy in our spirits. God, have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon our family, our friends, our co-workers, and our neighbors. God, have mercy. God, have mercy on the generations to come. Or bring, bring a revival to this land. Bring a revival in Jesus' name.